My fellow Lotus Eaters, hello. Welcome to the symposium. Today we're joined by the friend of the show, Charlie Downs. Great to be here. Nice to have you here. And we're going to talk about ideology. Now, one thing to say is that ideology and ideological studies is a vast field. We are not going to deal extensively with it, and we're not going to make a particularly deep dive to it. But we are going to introduce some of the topics that relate with respect to ideology, and we are going to sort of give tips of how to spot ideologues. Mm, yes. And I think that we are going to have a discussion about the dominant ideology right now, mm -hmm. or at least what we think it is. And I'm sure that uh, some of the comments will be spicy, but please, I want us all to be a bit... Uh, <laughs> Uh, polite. Yes, yes. Yeah? Okay. I think that the discussion around ideology is a very important one to have because yeah. I think that it's almost like trying to define ideology for a lot of people is like, you know, grasping it at mist because, um, as you say, there's such a, an enormous amount of scholarship on the subject and so many different definitions and understandings of that single word yeah. um, that when you say it, it's like so many other political concepts, when you use that word, what you mean by it might not be the same as what the person you're talking to understands it to mean and so it's it, i think it's useful to actually you know get down to actually you know, what we what we mean when we say ideology and i think there are some very solid definitions out there that particularly people on you know our kind of side of things uh should use so one thing to say is that when we are encountering a term like you know ideology mm. or liberty quality autonomy or you know um community it is important to bear in mind that these terms have a conventional meaning, mm. or you could say a lot of conventional meanings. Yeah. This is one of the features of language that uh, is a bit frustrating because we all have the tendency to think that all words have one and only one meaning mm. or one and only one <clears throat> meaning at a particular time. And if it changes at a particular time, then there, it has a retroactive effect with respect to the past and how people viewed it. I think that is a bit uh, quick. Mm. And unfortunately, language is a bit more complex. You could say there are some good aspects into it. Mm. But it seems to me that we need to constantly bear in mind that terms do not occur in a vacuum. Yeah. That is why I really like some of the insights of 20th century philosophy, particularly the emphasis on ordinary language and the emphasis on the world of shared practices with, in which meanings arise and people are using terms to communicate mm. as well as think by themselves. That is why I am very meticulous in using terms in a way that is consistent with their dominant historical meanings, because I think that if we are going to actually absorb insights or valuable insights from conservatism, we will have to basically do the math. Yes. And uh, a lot of the good elements in the, in, in the conservative position, the way I see it, mm. is a very healthy emphasis on the concrete world of here and now, mm -hmm. the concrete world of human practices and human cultures. And uh, by focusing that on that, we see the differences between cultures and practices. Yeah. It is a resistance it is a means to resist, you know, abstract theorizing. So I think that it is a good idea when we encounter terms such as ideology to look at the world in which they feature. So we have lots of uses of ideology. Do you want to 
say what you think when you hear the term. Absolutely. Very quickly, there are two things on what you just said. Yeah. One, I think it's absolutely right <clears throat> that conservative types need to um, just think more about language itself, because we know that you know the left in the universities, for example, have been um, you know pulling apart language for the better part of fifty years, um, and that's actually a real. It's a very strong tactic in the political sphere, um, and they are you know using those using language games essentially. They are winning in a lot of different spheres. So I think it's important, as you say, for conservatives to. <clears throat> basically start doing not quite the same thing, but actually understanding and being clear in what we mean when we say things, which, as you say, is why it's so important to um, to actually have a clear definition of words like ideology. So a couple of definitions of ideology. Let me just say that mm. I really like your point here. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear it. So there's a couple of definitions that I think are very useful um, for conservatives. The first is essentially Michael Oakeshott's definition of ideology. Um, now, he never actually writes out this, this is what ideology is. Um, but in uh, a lot of his writing, he kind of alludes to this concept, um, particularly in his work on rationalism, uh, which I know you've covered, covered before on Symposium. With Carl on Symposium. Yes. Yeah. Very good on that. Go and Thank watch you. it. Um, but there's just, there's just a few quotes from the essay, Rationalism and Politics, which I think are useful for kind of understanding where what Michael Oakeshott is getting at when he's talking about ideology. Um, so... I mean, first, do you think it might be useful, first of all, to maybe just give a very brief recap on the concept of rationalism and kind of Michael Oakeshott's thought? Uh, yeah, we could. Just very quickly, just because it's, it's sort of important to understand that for this quote. So Michael Oakeshott's concept of rationalism uh, is basically, it's a mode of thinking that has reason as the, you know, sort of ultimate, um, ultimate uh, arbiter of what's, yeah. what's valid and legitimate thought and what is not. Um, and that kind of manifests itself by the raising of what he calls technical knowledge to the position of supremacy. And this is knowledge that can be expressed in language, written in a book, uh, and learned by rote, essentially, as opposed to practical knowledge, um, which is knowledge that can't be expressed uh, in language and is learned through experience. So the example that I like to give um, for this to understand this distinction is a... Uh, it's martial arts based because okay, that's, yeah. that's what I like. I but, did um, Shotokan Karate. I'm a black belt. So I hear. Yes. Yeah. So... You know, you imagine somebody who is someone who's read every single book on karate ever written, but yeah. never actually stepped onto the mats. They have an enormous amount of technical knowledge on yeah. the, you know, the art of karate. On the other hand, you have someone who's never read a book on karate, but has you know, spent 10 years on the mats. They have an enormous amount of practical knowledge in yeah. the art of karate. So that's the two. And the, the, obvious, um, the obvious point to make there is the latter is going to be the more competent in the sport despite the fact that the former has an enormous amount of technical knowledge. So that's kind of, that's the knowledge distinction that Oakeshott draws. So rationalism is basically the supremacy of technical knowledge. It's a way of thinking that says that, um, you know, anything that can't be expressed in language or deduced through reason is, is actually not knowledge at all. It's a kind of, uh, it's because it is kind of vague and uh, difficult to express. It's not worth dealing with at all. Uh, that's, that, that's more or less the rationalist temperament. Okay. Do, do you want to say more? Um, no, I was just going to go into the quote about ideology now. Well, so, Oakeshott says, this is rationalism and politics, um, the rationalist believes the unhindered human reason, if only it can be brought to bear, is an infallible guide to political activity. Further, he believes in argument as the technique and operation of reason, the truth of an opinion, and the rational ground, not the use, of an institution is all that matters to him. Consequently, much of his political activity consists in bringing the social, political, legal, and institutional inheritance of his society before the tribunal of his intellect. And the rest is rational administration, reason, exercising an uncontrolled jurisdiction over the circumstances of the case. 
To the rationalist, nothing is of value merely because it exists, and certainly not because it has existed for many generations. Familiarity has no worth, and nothing is to be left standing for want of scrutiny. And his disposition makes both destruction and creation easier for him to understand and engage in than acceptance or reform. To patch up, to repair, that is to do anything which requires a patient knowledge of the material, he regards as a waste of time, and he always prefers, prefers to prefers the invention of a new device to making use of a current and well-tried expedient. He does not recognize change unless it is self-consciously induced change, and consequently he, fall, uh, he falls easily into the error of identifying the customary and the traditional with the changeless. This is aptly illustrated by the rational, rationalist attitude towards a tradition of ideas. There is, of course, no question either of retaining or improving such a tradition, for both these involve an attitude of submission. It must be destroyed. And to fill its place, the rationalist puts something of his own making, an ideology, the formalized abridgment of the supposed substrata of rational truth contained in the tradition. So what Oakeshott is saying is that ideology is essentially, it's almost like the opposite of, tra of tradition. It's the crystallization of the knowledge contained within tradition cut away from the tradition itself. Um, so I think that, for example, classical liberalism would be a good example of this. Um, classical liber liberalism essentially being English political traditions formalized in a book, like, for example, the two treaties on government or on liberty or something else, um, and cut away from the actual place and time and people that uh, it emerged within. Um, because that ideology is then, you know, it was li it literally taken away from England and transplanted, transplanted to America, um, where the kind of propositional um, classical liberal nation of the United States um, began. You know, it, it was uh, the rational application of uh, English traditions to create a new society. Uh, and then subsequently, obviously, the attempt was made to do the same thing um, in places like Afghanistan. And uh, we saw the results of that. So. Okay, so you have basically introduced of a, num a large number of ideas that mm. I will answer to all what I think about all of them. But it will take some time yep. because I think we need to focus a bit on how the notion of ideology is used in ordinary language right now. Yep. And to slowly build up. Yes. Okay? Great. So I think the first thing to say is that there are different uses of the notion of ideology. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned in the previous symposium that one of the major philosophers of, la of language in the 20th century was uh, Wittgenstein. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people associate a slogan with him that is a bit simplistic, but I think it can, f it can work for now, that meaning is use. So mm -hmm. when you want to find out the meaning of a term, you need to find out how it is used. Mm. But the meaning is not to be understood in the abstract, it is to be understood in the concrete, in the sense that what does a person mean when they use the word ideology? Yes. So what does this or that person mean when mm. they use it? So there are different people who use it in different ways. Yeah. For instance, I'm sure that other people like Marxists have a sort of different understanding of yeah. ideology than Oakeshott does, and that they use it in a different way. Mm. So first thing to notice is that ideology right now has a bad name. Mm -hmm. It has sort of a bad reputation because we use it uh, to, uh, to describe a lot of the dogmatic thinking mm. of some people. But let me just say that there are, there's a distinction between pejorative and non-pejorative uses of ideology. So I think we should start with the non-pejorative one and see the link between ideology and understanding. Mm -hmm. And ideology 
and theory and ideology and thinking, and then see how this spills over into the making of an ideologue. Mm. Because I firmly believe that when we're, that there are also ideologues in a pejorative sense and ideologues in a non-pejorative sense, mm. but I firmly believe that ideology is more about the manner in which beliefs are, are held, especially yes. in the pejorative uses that are the, mo the most famous right now. Mm. Let's start with the non-pejorative ones. Ideology like biology or you know, zoology or something, it's the study of ideas mm -hmm. in one sense. Yes. That's a non-pejorative one. But in another sense, an ideology is a system of ideas. Well, that's, I think that's what most... If you go up to the random person on the street and ask them what ideology is, if they're sort of on nodding terms with political ideas, I think they'll basically tell you some, some version of it's like a package of ideas. That's what an ideology is. It's a set of ideas. I actually, I remember being asked what, what my definition of ideology was in my first year of university, I think. Um, and I answered, it's kind of, it's almost like a, it's kind of like an algorithm, kind of like a formula um, it, in that you can be asked a question and the question kind of passes through the ideology and gives you an answer. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Um, so it's almost like a, it's like a preset um, you know, set of answers to any yeah. given question. Um, I think those two definitions are probably what most people would think an ideology is if you were to ask them. So I, I like what you're saying. I think it's a good uh, metaphor. Mm. It also reminds me of the metaphor of a filter. Yes, yes. So this is a very good way of showing how we think. Mm. And I think it is key to understand the relation between ideology and thinking because a lot of the time the pejorative sense of ideology is re refers to really fast thinking mm. and sometimes to no thinking it's yes. just a you could say a mindless subconscious reaction and that's and that's that that's why I think that being dogmatic and being ideological kind of become synonyms for a lot of people. Yes, but there is also an extra element or dimension into it mm. that is not so much about thinking, but it's also about sentimentality. Mm -hmm. yep. Because you could say that people who do embrace ideology and they do embrace some ideas, mm -hmm. they, they, their sentimentality is affected by them. So it's a very interesting subject to inquire with respect to why or how thought operates mm. and uh, how our beliefs affect our emotions and our worldview. Mm. Well, that's another interesting thing about when people use the term ideological. I think there's often the implication that ideological thinking is in some way unnatural or is in some way... Um, that's the best way I can think to put it, to be honest. That it's some way separated. It. Yeah, but it's kind of some way separated from nature. If you're thinking ideologically, then you're in some way thinking in a way that is against your own nature. That, and, and I think there is actually some truth to that, because I think that, you know, a, a hardcore communist, for example, or, you know, just any, any kind of person who holds equality as being their ultimate value and the ultimate goal of a political system, um, I think there is a there is a kind of separation from reality in that way of thinking. And so that they, you know, they are thinking, to describe that as ideological thinking, with ideological thinking meaning thinking that's separated from nature, I think there is some strength to that argument. Do you, you see what I'm saying with that? Yeah. yeah. So let us focus a bit on that. So have you ever felt 
a, a really strong attachment or a eureka moment when you were reading a theory or something? Uh, yes, many times. <laughs> yeah? Do, do you want to share what um, that is or not? <clears throat> you don't have to. No, no, I will. Um, it was actually, do you know, it, it's, it, some of the moments actually came from listening to Carl over the years. So when he's spoken about, um, you know, when he first started getting into conservatism, um, and I, I then subsequently started reading people like Burke, um, reading things, as well, and Oakshot as well, for that matter. Um, he's, a, he's a real um, important thinker to me. Um, because when he does talk about the limits of reason and the limits of, you know, what we call rationalism, um, that was a real, like, click moment for me. Because... You know, when you read particularly rationalism in politics by Oakeshott and you actually truly digest what he's saying and you look around and you see this type of thinking that he identifies everywhere in the modern world. It is literally everywhere. It's at the top levels of government. It's in all the corporations. It's in all the universities. This kind of championing of reason and technique, um, which manifests itself in essentially managerialism. Um, when I read that, I, you know, a lot of things started to make sense to me. Um, another sort of area of uh, political theory that I think contains a great deal of truth is elite theory. Um, and when I started reading that, um, that was another kind of eureka moment um, because it did kind of pull back the curtain on why things um, were going in the way that they were going. Because, um, you know, I believed my whole life that we were living in open liberal democracies where, you know, if you feel a certain way then the best thing to do is vote you know that's the that's what we're told our whole lives that your 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 best course of action if you want change is to vote um yet we do that and nothing seems to change um and the kind of elite theory answer to that i think is very strong which i think we we may get into but so i wanted to uh, i'll address all these issues towards mm. the end if you if you yeah. would like so i think that the reason why it's important to talk about eureka moments is because a lot of the times, a lot of people have a sentimental attach attachment to the first theory <laughs> that they read. Yes. And they thought it suddenly all makes sense. Mm. So, for instance, I'm thinking of, I I'm sure you met the the regular communist in your uh, school. Mm -hmm. Many. <laughs> Many of them. So, yes. what was it about them when it came to Marxism, did they not have a sentimental attachment towards it? I think it's a combination of things. I think there is a sentimental attachment to it. I think there's also a kind of, young people do, and I feel this in myself, young people do have this kind of, um, I've heard Jordan Peterson call it a messianic impulse, you know, this kind of need to, to save the world. Um, I think that that's another thing that draws a lot of young people to Marxism because it does promise um, you know, this is the philosophy of liberation and this is the philosophy of, you know, of the of the downtrodden and the oppressed and all the rest of it. Um, I think that that's a big part of it. Um, and also, I mean, you know, I was I was drawn to left wing ideas when I was younger, when I was first getting interested in politics in my late teens. I was very drawn to to, to Marxism and other left wing ideas, again, in part because they do seem, you know, if you're uh, if you've been raised in the kind of society that we have today where ideas of equality and that sort of thing are championed something like marxism does not it doesn't seem that much of a stretch to think well if everyone is equal then it's kind of seems fair that everyone is you know is kind of has an equal outcome but then when you actually live in the world for a while you see that that's just total so you nonsense. were drawn to marxism initially i never called myself a marxist okay. but I want to I want to show how this relates to ideology mm. or how I think. Yeah. So Marxism has a way of 
giving some answers to some questions. Mm -hmm. And essentially, all ideologies have. All ideologies are, you could say, systems of ideas that try to give us answers to questions. Yes. And a lot of the time, the main desideratum there, the main thing that people want from a theory is explanatory power. Yes. So when, for instance, I interacted with several Marxists in my school and later on in the, my university and so, so far, it seems to me that the main thing that they consciously show, they consciously display, is a belief that Marxism can account for everything, yes. socially speaking. Now, the reason I'm saying consciously is because there are all sorts of sub subconscious reasons and ways in which we are affected by our environment mm. that, leads, that lead us to attach ourselves to particular theories. I'm not yes. going to psychologist because generally I don't like it. I don't think it's very gentlemanly, mm. although in some cases it's necessary. Mm. Uh, especially when psychology is the, is, is, uh, the um, topic of discussion. But mm. I, I'm not going to talk about what each person has mm. in their soul that leads them to be drawn to particular theories, but I will take them at face value. Yes. And... Um, listen to what they say. So they consciously display a belief that Marxism can't account, can account for everything. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is quite telling about ideology because it's not a belief that only Marxists have. Yes. It's a belief that a lot of people have. And I think that ultimately it boils down to some principles, some generalizations that p people cling on to mm. And they treat a sort of sacrosanct uh, revelations that are used as the motherboard of the filter you described when you gave yes. the metaphor before. I think that's a great way of putting it. And yeah. it's interesting that you bring up the uh, kind of the certainty that ideology can provide, because that's another thing that Oakeshott talks about. Yeah. He says that the, the irrationalist has a preoccupation with certainty. Yeah. And an ideology, you know, a kind of, if you want a well a well-constructed ideology like Marxism, because it is, it is a well-constructed ideology, like looking at it in a value-free way, yeah. it's internally consistent, it's self-contained. You can read one book and more or less understand what Marxism is all about. Yeah. And I think that a lot of, again, particularly young people, particularly uh, intelligent young people, will be drawn to that because they can have their book, they can read it, and they can think, this has all the answers. You know? And I think there is a kind of security that comes with that. There's a security that comes with certainty. And I think that's another aspect of what draws people to ideology. Okay, so I think there is, and that's a very sentimental in a way, because yes. once you already adopt the, some generalizations as being the main principles according to which you're going to judge everything, mm. that is when you are basically hiding behind them. And, mm. But th there's an issue because I don't want to be accusative. I don't want to accuse people. I want to show, I want to understand people. Mm. And I think that it is a very deeply human need to develop a kind of ideological thinking. Mm. Now, I use this in a non-pejorative sense. And I want us to focus now on the methodology of the non-pejorative sense and the met some methodological remarks that relate to ideology in the sense of a system of ideas, yep. and then proceed to talk about ideologues in the pejorative sense. So 
think of physics, for instance. Physics does have, does contain some generalizations. Mm -hmm. And it also contains statements of particular, of particular observations. Mm -hmm. And this is key to see because one of the, how can you explain stuff without appealing to generalizations? Physics, if you see, can only explain things because it is not a list of facts. Mm. Because we are limited beings and we cannot comprehend an infinite list, like for instance, the Laplace's demon in the famous hypothesis mm. where determinism was first, not first, <laughs> not, not by any means, but where determinism was very much um, portrayed, was portrayed very well. It seems to me that what we're trying to do is to account for a limit by means of finding some generalizations and by means of the belief that they govern the whole universe. Yeah. So, in a way, without that, we would not have advanced to the level of prosperity and wealth and civilization that we have advanced now. Mm. And I, I think that's a good thing. Yes. I know some people in the comments may go, no, civilization was a bad idea and prosperity and all this, but I'm pro-civilization and prosperity. <laughs> you know, yeah, the there's, a, there's, a, there's a more nuanced conversation to have there, and that's not for this time, I think. Okay, that, mm. that needs some whiskey or mm. something. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, I think that in a way we need to understand that when we are trying to understand the world, we are trying to find relations. Mm. And this is a major theme. And we, can't, we don't have this infinite mind. We don't have a capacity for infinite knowledge. And we're not infallible. That's the main thing. Mm. And that's what a lot of ideologues are forgetting. Yes. So we're not infallible. We need to have a way of making sense of things. And some generalizations are necessary. We cannot do without them. Mm. Because without them, we cannot move past the idea of a list of facts. And if reality is a list of facts, deep down, it's incomprehensible. Mm. And I think there's a very deep need that human beings have to understand the world. We have the need to sort of find out how things hang together. And when we are talking about how things hang together, we are talking about relations. Yes. So what we are frequently doing is we're trying to cling on some generalizations by believing that they hold for the entire universe. Now, let me just say this. I do think that belief in them is a major part, but I don't think that it is something that we don't have reason to, to do. We, don't have, we do have reason to this because a lot of uh, physicists, for instance, they would say, well, I do believe that this holds, not because I am certain that it does, but because I have good reason to believe that it does. For mm. instance, it is a generalization that hasn't been disconfirmed yet. So a lot of the times, if you actually look at how physicists worth their salt are proceeding, they're going to say, I, I am making these assumptions. And if I grant these assumptions, then that point follows. Mm. Few people would go out and tell us that this is necessarily true. Um, it's a bit difficult for physics to, to account for that. Yeah. That is why a lot of the times there is a mathematical underpinning 
into physics that a lot of people think it cannot be explained by physics. Mm. It can be explained by reason as some Platonists would hold. And I'll return that towards the end. Mm. But the, the main idea is that because we have cognitive limits, we cannot make sense of a world and we cannot grasp the universe as a list of facts. And because we have to navigate in the world, we have to find a sort of economic way of arranging our belief system. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, we are forming generalizations that we hang, cling on to and we assume them to be true in order to explain things. So I think that this is one really interesting part of ideological thinking. And, it, and in that sense, you could say that science is an ideology because it's a system of ideas that we use to navigate. I don't think that's in a pejorative sense, by mm -hmm. the way. How does this sound? I think that what you're touching on there is, again, back to Oakeshott, he talks about this kind of need for not just certainty, but perfection in the kind of rationalist way of thinking, which is essentially indistinguishable from the ideological way of thinking in the way that we're talking about it right now. Um, I think that the kind of generalizations that you're talking about, it's very much the same thing with it in, in the physics, in, in the area of physics. It's the same thing with an ideology um, because the generalizations that you're able to make um, using an ideology like, for example, Marxism um, can feel, I think to a lot of people, very certain and very perfect and very self-contained. Um, but the reality is, you know, and Oakeshott talks about this as well, politics in particular is an extremely, you know, it, it's, it's, he says it's veined with tradition and, and circumstance um, and contingent uh, factors. Um, you can't just have this universal, universally applicable set of answers, you know, that work in all times and places, because frankly, that's just a kind of impossible thing to have. You have to have, there has to be an acknowledgement of, um, <clears throat> again, the contingent circumstances of the time and place that you're in right now. And that is, I think, the function of the opposite of ideology, which is tradition. Um, because tradition is rooted in a time and place. Tradition is a way of thinking that does, it's attached to the real world. It's practical as opposed to technical. Um, and so I think, as you say, there is this preoccupation with perfection and um, certainty in, the, in ideology. But I don't think that that's... Uh, I don't think that's a surprising thing, for one thing, because I think humans will always crave those things. Um, I think that religion gave people that um, for a long time, but perhaps because we've blown out the kind of metaphysical um, foundations of religion, people don't find much certainty in it anymore. And so they turn their faith to other things, which, you know, ideologies being one of those. I want to say that for me, what you said here about the metaphysical foundations of religion, and I would also say the metaphysical foundations of transcendence, mm -hmm. have precisely to do with forgetting reason. Mm. Interesting. Okay, go on. So, okay, if I told you I paid my taxes, but I didn't pay my taxes, or last, last uh, Friday that we were about to shoot this mm. discussion, but GWR had different plans. Yes. If uh, you told me, if I told you, well, I'm not at the office, but I'm in the office. But I showed up. What did you say? Uh, you didn't, because I was here and you weren't here. <laughs> okay, so that's a contradiction. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be in the office to, to know that this yes. is a contradiction. Yes. Would you say the contradictions are false? Yes. Okay, contradictions are false everywhere and at all times. That's a very interesting question. 
because there are contradictions. I mean, everybody lives contradictions. What do you mean? I, well, I think I mean I think basically everybody is a hypocrite in some way or another, and that's a kind of contradiction. But, but yet they are living it out. But the question is that is that true or not? I'm not saying that people cannot contradict themselves. Mm. I'm saying that when they do, they're saying something false. Mm. I think that so if, they, if, I, if, they, if I did contradict myself, yeah, if they say if they say one thing but behave as if another thing is true, then they are contradicting themselves, and the actual the truth is to be found in what they're doing and not in what they're saying. Yes, yeah, but I think there there is a subtly different point here mm. because uh, first of all, I, I couldn't agree with you more on mm. that. That is why I very frequently on the podcast and on the symposium, I'm talking about the difference between rhetoric and action. Yes. And that is why I'm very focused on, on language mm. and how people use language. So you don't need to be in the office to know that I would be bullshitting you if I told you something like that. Yes. There, you don't need to see how I'm going to behave afterwards mm. if I tell you, I was in the office, but I was—I didn't—I wasn't in the office, but I did show up. Mm. You, you don't need to see, look at anything past that yeah, claim. It's to a priori. Know. Yeah. Wrong. So it, yeah. it is not so much the uh, the contradiction involved in a hypocrite's claim about what they are about mm. that you cannot just deduce the falsity from the claim, but you do deduce falsity from the observed behavior. Yes. So you don't need that. You don't need observation to know this, that I'm, I mm. would be bullshitting you if, if I told you that. Yeah. So in that respect, would you say that contradictions in that sense are true, are false everywhere and at all times? Yes. Okay. So if all you have as a sensory being, that, that, that's the, that is the main distinction of course, it's more complex, but that is the main distinction in the in a lot of epistemological positions in modernity, and that is what I took issue with a uh, with a book that uh, Harry and I did a book club on. Mm. It's a book by C. A. Bond called uh, what was it? I don't remember. But mm. at some point, he says in this book we're going to come into conflict with the epistemology of modernity, mm -hmm. and I took issue with this because, well, epistemology is half my PhD. <laughs> And uh, I think that this is a very wild claim to make in a small book that is mm. not primarily about epistemology. But let me just say this. If you are a purely sensory being and all you have is the senses, how do you have, how are you justified in making a claim about something that holds everywhere and at all times? Well, you can't, I mean, you know, literally you can't possibly know that it is true in all times and places because you can't experience all times and places. Yes. So the point is, how are you certain that contradictions don't exist? Well, you can't be. That is the, the major difference here. Mm. The, if you cannot be, there are all sorts of other things that you can't be certain about. Mm. Because, you know, if, if inconsistency is not a problem, then why is my claim false? Why, why am I false in telling you that I wasn't here, but I did show up? And why am I false and someone else isn't? Hmm. It's, a, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting thought. I mean, to take this back to ideology, I think that, 
Again, something like Marxism presents itself as having no internal contradictions. As a matter of fact, it accuses capitalism of having internal contradictions and that being a bad thing and that yeah. eventually, inevitably, leading to the collapse of capitalism. Um, I think that there's, there's, real, there's actually real rhetorical power in the accusation of contradictions. Yeah. Um, and yet, as you say, it's not actually possible for one person to be absolutely certain that a system of, of ideas contains no contradictions because they don't have, they can't have the opportunity to, you know, put that system into practice in all times and places. Yeah, but I want to show you why someone would be attracted to that kind of thinking. Mm. Because people, for, for instance, Hume is known for the problem of induction. Yeah. And he says that from, you can never establish a universal mm. generalization from particular observations. So, for instance, and that is why he says that before uh, going to Australia, the English had never seen before black swans. Mm. And the generalization, all swans are white, would have formed in their mind. And that was disconfirmed by the observation of a black swan. Mm -hmm. So, this is, in a sense, one of the issues with trying to establish generalizations by sense experience. Mm. Now, there's, an, th there's a dichotomy here, and that is why I'm a rationalist in this case. And it's a bit different from what Oakshot has in mind for me, but, but Oakshot understands it. Mm. A lot of people will use Oakshot without saying that uh, Oakshot says this, I don't mean the rationalist of tra tradition. Mm. Um, so when it comes to this, you'll see that there's a major problem, for instance, with how we can say that we know things like 2 plus 2 equals 4 yeah. anywhere, at any place, at all times, or there are no true contradictions anywhere, at all times. So things like that, traditionally speaking, are either not known, in which case we've, we're fooling ourselves when we are saying that contradictions are false, mm -hmm. Or they are known, but they're not known by the senses. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.